This podcast is made possible with support from Audix, makers of professional vocal, studio, and instrument microphones and headphones. Performance is everything. Learn more at audixusa.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Fleet Foxes recently released their fourth album, Sure, a sprawling and at times cinematic work that began as a solo record for the band's singer and principal songwriter, Robin Pecknold. Written and recorded in several locations around the globe, Robin and engineer Beatriz Artola, working with outside musicians and band members, have created the band's most mature and engaging work to date. Jeff Stanfield caught up with Robin from their respective homes in Seattle and Los Angeles to talk about the process of recording the album and chat about some of their favorite tracks. Enjoy. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you doing? I wanted to focus our conversation around the production and, and, um, really just sort of the intent around making this record. Um, so I'll just jump in and say, you know, uh, how did you approach making this record? And, you know, how, how was it different than the, the records that you'd previously done? Um, the approach was, uh, I mean, similar in certain ways. You know, I feel like doing this long enough, I kind of got into the groove of, you know, understanding what each phase of, the process would be and kind of being really directed about, okay, I'm going to go to Portugal for a few weeks and and try and write songs there and, you know, get into that kind of, um, you know, fish out of water mindset that sometimes cool songs come out of, or I'm going to go to this weird place and try and write some other songs. And so I had about a year of kind of writing songs that way. And it was right at the tail end of, of, of touring the last album. Um, and, a, you know, a lot of the approach was, um informed by that tour because the previous album there hadn't been a tour for a few years before that so it was more of a kind of a studio thing or there was no kind of context of performance that i was thinking about and then being back on tour and like enjoying it a lot and then also kind of noticing that it took a minute to get back up to speed with you know performing and 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 giving the you know building those muscles back um that experience definitely informed these songs. So I was like, okay, it'll be, I was kind of thinking about songs that, that would be really fun to play live more so when writing these songs, which is ironic that now it comes out and there's no opportunities to tour for a while. Um, but, you know, another aspect of it was, yeah, it was the fourth album. Um, I really wanted to kind of go for it as much as I could and take everything. It was a little bit more about kind of, you know, folding in, everything I've learned over the last 12 years or even 15 or 20 years of trying to write songs um, and just kind of synthesize that all and kind of bring it all into balance or, you know, employ it all in a a new way and less about like, um, I don't know, like uh, being really experimental or being kind of um, willfully obtuse or being, uh, you know, I don't know. It was, it was more about integration than it was kind of, you know, continuing to, to uh, then kind of forsaking the past or or paying too much fealty to it or or, or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, but you know, you talked about it being a having the intent being like really about songs that you'd like to play live, but you made this record without the the other members of, you know, the existing Fleet Foxes. Did this come out of a solo record or did this come out of you just really wanting to have a singular focus and see it to its, you know, logical conclusion? Yeah. Um I guess, you know, songs that felt good to play live was less about having them be performed live and more about while recording them and more about having really consistent or solid grooves behind them, which is something that has been lacking at times on past Fleet Foxes albums. And process wise, um, you know, it wasn't that different uh, this time versus the other times. It's usually like, you know, I mean, it's always been my songs and my lyrics and I'm recording most of the instruments and all usually most of the vocals. And then they're, you know, bringing people in kind of once the vision is really clear, bringing people in to kind of augment that. Um, so the process wasn't different, but it was just a wider field of collab- collaborators and, you know, contributors on this album. And, we, and back, back to kind of, that was also, you know, a thought because I didn't know if I'd ever get the chance to make, you know, an expensive album again. And I thought I might as well just go for it this time. Um, rather than than wait or, you know, because who, who knows what the future holds. And it was definitely, you know, the process was influenced by and changed by the pandemic. And I had to kind of, you know, figure out how I was going to finish it and on what timeline. And, and, uh, and that was definitely a factor. So you worked with Beatrice Artola on this record, and you know I was curious about how you guys worked together, and how was that different than past producer collaborations with somebody like Phil Eck? Um, yeah, on the previous album Crack Up, it was me and my friend Sky, and he, that was a good kind. Of, you know, it's always good to have somebody to kind of, you know, be bouncing ideas off of, and and kind of, you know, letting an album live kind of in the space between two people sometimes feels good, you know, and Phil Eck was definitely that person on Helplessness Blues, um, more so than on the first Fleet Foxes album, which was kind of like piecemeal, um, you know, sometimes recording in my parents' basement and sometimes doing two days at a studio because that's what we could afford. And, you know, just kind of like scraping something together over the course of a year with very little resources. Um, so with Beatrice, you know, I was, excited to work with someone um, someone new and, and someone that I had a good working relationship with um, from a different context. You know, I, I felt strong enough in like what I wanted to make that it wasn't necessarily like, you know, I was more interested in her as a person and her technical abilities than I was in like maybe past records she'd made or something. Whereas, you know, with someone like Phil, it's like, oh, he made the, you know, built still albums and, I, I, you know, it's like legend, and he's awesome, an awesome guy, you know. But what that wasn't the case with Beatrice. It was just like she's a great person, great, great, great discography, but just like a great person. And then we worked really well together. Um, there was never kind of a. I think when we were recording the vocals, I I asked her to give a little more input in terms of when a take was good enough because I can lose focus on that kind of thing when recording vocals. Um, but before that, you know, it was really, she wasn't like, you got to get that bass take again, or, you know, one more time, one more, it wasn't that kind of producer role. It was more like, um, something was done when it, 
you know, it just kind of felt it in the air when something was done rather than it being stated explicitly. And even, you know, I think for me, the main thing I would look, if she was kind of bobbing her head along to something that I knew that it was working, you know, and so that was kind of the like unspoken litmus test or something. It's often overlooked the value of the hang and the yeah. people in the room. Oh, totally. And I mean, with Beatrice, it was, you know, I was lucky that she does have like all the technical ability in the world and, and, you know, but yeah, it was more that, you know, we were able to work day in and day out, 12 hours, 16 hour days sometimes. And there was no kind of like social exhaustion, you know, which can happen sometimes if there are too many cooks in the kitchen or it's like a relationship isn't vibing right, you know, and then that ultimately just becomes like, a, you know, an impediment to, can can be at times an impediment to um, to making progress and making the work you want to make and being productive, you know. And uh, I know there are stories about, you know, bands that hate each other making these great albums and that becomes part of the mythology of certain things. But that's also just like how much, you know, you don't want a toxic environment. I don't think that's like necessarily a, a good thing at all. Can you talk a little bit about the importance or the effect of the place on on lyrics uh, and, and just general inspiration? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think touring for two years, I think I was up for a crack up. You know, I, it took me a little while. I, I was, you know, that feeling of like loving traveling, but then only getting to see a place for a day. I, I was into the idea of then making an album that had a travel element. And I had, you know, been able to, from the tour you know had this then luxurious budget you know that i wouldn't have had otherwise to kind of make that dream come true um you know i don't think i think it, this this was definitely like the most uh gratuitous in terms of yeah let's just fly to france for two weeks but it was also that was also because it was just me and beatrice working and, and it was just cheaper uh, you know if you're working in a really small team you can do things like that and it's a little bit you know makes more sense than than trying to fly 10 people somewhere and you know that would just be too expensive um and so back to that thing of just like really wanting to go for it this time and and just kind of make the dream album that i'd always envisioned and then kind of have the dream experience which was like yeah go to this cool studio in in france or go to box in la all these dream studios that i had had on the list you know um, I was really thinking about it like I didn't know if I'd ever get the chance to do this again and might as well just go for it. And I think like it really comes back to, I mean, I, in the future, I'll, you know, probably having scratched that itch, I don't feel the need to do that again necessarily. But it is definitely, my in my experience, definitely true that the more unfamiliar you are with a circumstance, the more kind of fresh ideas you might find coming to you, you know travel on its own is is great and you can gather inspiration but you're sort of packing it away as opposed to what it sounded like you did was you're you were kind of working during this during these travels and gathering bits of things and writing and and then being able to you know put that stuff in a fixed medium you know and record it yeah i mean they're different you know it was funny actually being able to work at aaron's place as a tourist basically you know going to his studio for two weeks because he built that place from the ground up and he's much more of a, you know, a, a producer and a, you know, a kind of making the donuts day in and day out kind of, kind of musician. And I have this kind of 
you know, a little bit experiential uh, 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 way of approaching it, where there's a kind of like narrative to the where all the studios are going to be, and you know, putting that together. And uh, you know, I always thought that building my own studio, I'd feel like, you know, I'd lose inspiration at some point. But then Aaron's made like three Taylor Swift albums and a national album, and all kinds of people have been through that space that he built. You know, so there's obviously like a ton of um, value in, in committing to that and, 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 you know, field of dream style. Like if you build it, they will come. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the tone of your records because although they're different and, and the writing is different and, and you've developed as a, as a writer and producer and musician in general, A, they're very classic sounding and also there's a lot of reverb. You're not afraid mm-hmm. of, they're not afraid of the wetness. And how do you manage to get the value of what you're writing about at the time through the sound? Obviously, you know, as simple as just like make something that sounds good to you. I've always gravitated towards like classic sounding stuff or, or stuff that felt like, um, you know, warm or organic or, or, you know, felt human, um, you know, had that, you know, element of like t- technically very high quality, but, but, very human capturing very human things um i've also you know had a kind of you know i've liked kind of grand or transportative music that has kind of an ethereal or otherworldly quality and um you know been like taken by like that kind of approach um and it's it i guess it just felt like the thing that was hardest to arrive at or something like the thing that would require the most kind of interesting work. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's so hard talking about music sometimes. Um, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Cause it, part of this just person, you know, it's as simple as just like, that's, that's my taste, but why is that my taste? I, I, I think like on, on this record, especially, you know, it was kind of interesting because I was noticing just reaching for, it was like reaching for the weirdest possible or the wrongest possible instrument to make the thing that was normal in the right way. That wasn't totally 100% like a throwback ripoff, you know, um, it's always, it's always, it's maddening to talk about or and maddening to do, but it's just like that, you know, trying to find that thing that's classic, but doesn't feel like a pure sixties exotica ripoff or something, you know, just that kind of like finding that, that weird balance, you know. You know, that's such an important thing that you just said was like f- trying to fill a, or at least how I heard it was try to fill a, a function with with an instrument that was not necessarily the right instrument for the job, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know, I'm at the point now where, like, I, I think when I was younger, you know, some some of those records, I'd be so in love with them, to, and they seemed so hard to get to something like that that it, you know, it felt like a the gauntlet was thrown down or something like, Oh, that's the gold standard. How did they make that? Got to learn all those techniques and like get it there, you know? And I feel a little bit past that point now and more, more, it's just like, okay, how do I find the interesting thing that still feels like a song that has, you know, um, you know, some, but it's not like hero worship, you know, how do you look for the instruments and the tones that suit 
what you're trying to say to bring them to life via their frame, you know? I, my solution for that has actually been to write the lyrics last and approach them more like um, their approach it really way more like I'm translating the music into words than it is that I'm then the other way around. Um, that's been my approach so far. I've only recently in the last month or so started writing lyrics without music attached and kind of approaching it in a more straightforward lyric, like lyric first way. But, you know, it's really been the opposite. It's less like what instrument is suiting this word and more like what word, what line, what is this sound, what is the sound making me feel or think about, or what is it evoking? And then, translating that into language you know do you have melodies in mind when you're creating these arrangements and you're in the studio well the melodies are always there i feel like i write melodies you know melody is kind of um something that's always like popping melodies are always coming into my mind for one reason or another like just singing in the shower or just something while you're driving just like my mind is idle like melodies are coming to me and i'll write them down and or you know record them into my phone or if i'm have a period of like really intensively trying to write songs every day i'll just have all those melodies kind of floating around they'll eventually congeal into songs you know and and uh and then so the melodies are always there and i'll have to kind of sing gibberish words along you know with those melodies and then some of those syllables stick and those you know feel like they need to be there um and then really once the song is fully arranged and it has all the bells and whistles, like that's when I kind of am like, okay, what's this song feel like? And what is, you know, cause it's, it's really six of one half dozen together. Like if you're sitting down to write a song, even without lyrics, you're still expressing something, some feeling or some, some state that you're in, you know, that's coming through like your, your, whatever values you have are being encoded in that thing you're making. And so it's just one way of expressing it with, with, with sound or with music or with words, you know. And so um, it's always worked to, to do the lyrics last for me. Yeah, cool. Um, can we talk about a few few of the tracks on on yeah, the record? Totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple standouts for me. So maybe I'll just throw them out there, and then if you have have uh, some that you'd like to throw in the mix, please do. Um, how about Jara? I mean, I love this tune. A lot of the songs on this record, you know, I wanted there to be a pretty simple underlying chord progression and then kind of mute it and just have it being expressed in a bunch of melodic stuff and then, you know, build it up from there and have like a lot of layers of cool counterpoint, even if the underlying chords are, are pretty simple, you know, and that's a pretty simple like mixolydian chord progression. Um, and that was another one where, you know, that riff is something I actually had for a few years and then, but it ended up pairing really well with this totally different melody. Um, and, you know, use the pet sounds vibraphone on that one as, but it was acting as like a delay slapback for this 12 string guitar that they had at Vox. Um, and it, it was, you know, it was, that was, that was a good example of like, I had that song, I was building it, it was feeling cool, but it was feeling like, uh, that maybe this is like a little too like you know birdsy twelve string, um, and I was like it needed some modern element or some you know something that wouldn't have been in one of those records, and, and so you know that 
that made me want to write the lyrics more from the perspective of now, you know, after like, uh, you know, a little bit feeling more present day and then asking Mira O'Reilly to build this kind of, um, you know, pocketed, uh, really intricate vocal arrangement to kind of coexist with, with the more throwback elements. Um, and, you know, once those things were there, it was like, okay, cool. This is like a real thing and, and everything feels intentional and it doesn't feel like it's trying to be, you know, something like a, like a relic of something, but it's, you know, it's just in touch with some of those references. Um, how about Can I Believe You? Yeah, that song was super fun to work on. That was like the, um, you know, during the Crack Up tour, we were doing this, you know, two-hour show every night with like three breaks between songs or something, like a lot of really long instrumental passages. It was like pretty taxing mentally. and um, But it was really fun to do, but it was, you know, it was intense. So, so I would just, in the dressing room, I would just start writing that. I started writing that song as just kind of like a clear the air kind of breather from the kind of heavy, dusty, you know, stuff we were doing on stage every night. And it was just like, kind of became this like fun, you know, no rules kind of song where it's like, cool, this is, you know, kind of a, like arena soul, like a slightly weird. I thought it was kind of a funny funny song you know try to try a bunch of um it, it felt like a free free space to try a bunch of things that wouldn't have felt comfortable trying in a song before like a weird choir of voices that's like kids that send in submissions from instagram or like pitched conga drums or um scraping your shoes across the floor or you know these kind of jarring big bright chords that come in or you know it's just kind of this um i don't know like a get out of jail free card or something
I love the horns on this record. A couple of the tunes have some horns on them. Um, going to the Sun Road. Yeah. Yeah, man, that was like because we worked with the Westerlies a little bit on Crack Up, but not as not enough. And and so and then they joined us on tour for that album, and they were able to come up with these really beautiful arrangements for the old songs. And they did it, you know, they'd have something ready in a day. And, you know, they're just an amazing group, that horn quartet. And so I knew that I wanted to work with them more on this album um, and, and explore that more. And so they were actually the first, you know, they came to Aaron's studio and just layered those arra- their arrangements onto basically demos. Um, and so the horns were kind of there for the whole recording process. They, you know, that's another thing that's a little backwards. Like those usually add those at the end or something, but those were there before a lot of, before I was recording around those the whole time. Um, and on going to the Sun Road, it was like, that's such a beautiful arrangement that Willem Decock came up with um, for that song. And, you know, that was lucky because, you know, that arrangement was so cool and so lush. And so it made, you know, it's kind of set the tone for what the rest of the song needed to sound like. And so, you know, I had those horns in place and I was able to like, oh, those are there. And then, add these really intricate layers of 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 minimal you know kind of a pointillist harpsichord or something and those were kind of informed by the you know something complementary to that horn texture um and then you know tim bernardes singing in portuguese over over that as well you know and 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 building the um actually ended up making that song like two minutes longer than it would have been to feature those horns and to feature Tim. Um, and yeah, the, the, that was like a, a beautiful experience. And I, and I'm, I'm really happy with that, how, how that song came out to the, to the point that I was like, should I even sing on this song? Or like, should this even have a lyric, you know, it should be an instrumental or something. And uh, Cradling Mother and Cradling Woman, this one also has a little bit of a of a story because of the sample that you used in it. Um, that song was, you know, so some of the stuff on, yeah, that, that's Brian Wilson's voice counting the song in and, and he's, you know, counting the, because, yeah, it was, it was like he was both counting the song in, but then he's also, you know, giving the, the, the quarter note pattern or the, the four four pattern. Um, and then Beatrice's voice is singing the, the, the triplet pattern that's counter to it, you know, and the whole song was built about, built around this, like, 
three over four, you know, um, polyrhythm. And um, that was a song where I was like, I explored stuff a little bit like that on Crack Up, but I didn't feel like it was quite nailed in the way that it should be like frequency spectrum wise or uh, emotionally or something. So that was kind of like an, uh, an unfinished business kind of song, like wanting to get, make, you know, the best version of that idea possible. And uh, it was cool to have Brian, you know, a sample of Brian Wilson counting it in because, you know, uh, he's such a, obviously huge inspiration and a huge influence. And um, that song has by far the most layers of any Fleet Foxes song. And uh, I really wanted it to be kind of as full spectrum as possible and just as dynamic as possible. And um, it felt like, you know, I don't know, like Obi-Wan counting in. <laughs> yeah. Something, you know, like uh, it felt a little bit like, I. It's presumptuous, I think, uh, to say it, but you know, like master, uh, student, master, student teacher, student master, or something. You know, Brian's disembodied voice, and then the song that comes in is this very, like, you know, kind of dense, uh, you know, baroque, kind of like I don't know, trying to impress the the legend or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, just even his presence of of that on the track, I'm I'm sure was just a you know, every single time you're reminded about that presence, and totally. that's that's kind of cool, man. I mean, it's almost like you could do that and then not have it be in the final mixes for other things uh-huh, as, a, yeah. as a as a tool, wow. if, you know. Totally, yeah. You should count. I'll I'll just have him counting everything. thing that i thought was really interesting on this the, the way that you st- you open the record it's not you singing yeah i mean that's related to the brian thing you know because i thought like you know lyrically there are a lot of themes of um you know music as this kind of tra- you know this means of transmission of you know and this kind of means of you know musicians being our pantheon of gods or our legends or you know people like you know 
David Berman or uh, Richard Swift or uh, you know Bill Withers or John Prine, people that have passed recently that we you know we we rightfully want to uh, remember and, and carry their memories on. And uh, that was a big part of you know what I was thinking about at the time, and that was coming on the music you know naturally, and that you know some of it's very reference you know, very influenced by these people, but also is you know, integrating different ideas or new, newer ideas as well. You know, that's just the musical equivalent of that thought for sure. You know, and so I thought, you know, to have a, a young woman's voice open the album, like she's, you know, I think she was 19 when we recorded it. And then to have an old legend's voice near the end of the album. And then, you know, that's just placing, you know, me, me as a songwriter, kind of in, in the middle there, you know, um, one link in like this chain of transmission or whatever, and that's something we've talked about elsewhere on the on the record. Um, and you know, Uwade, a friend of mine had sent me a clip of her singing a Fleet Foxes song a couple of years ago, and and I was just like blown away by the the character of her voice, and um, I was, you know, as a singer, I, I feel like. I try and use my voice in as many ways uh, as I can, but you can't, you know, I can't be her. I can't like borrow her voice box or, you know, it's, it's, it, it was just feeling that her voice was perfectly suited to this song idea that I had for, for the intro. And uh, it just felt like a nice kind of like destabilizing way to open an album, like with an unfamiliar element, you know, and, uh, and, and kind of open the door for more of that stuff in the future. Beautiful. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.